Welcome to episode 230 of the Cyber Law Podcast brought to you by Steptoe and Johnson. We are back and full of energy. Thank you for joining us. We're lawyers talking about technology, security, privacy, and government. And if you want me to talk about uh, hiking through the rainforest of Costa Rica uh, and just how tough my six-year-old granddaughter is, uh, I'm glad to do that too. Uh, but today I'm joined uh, by our guest interviewee, Bruce Schneier. Uh, an internationally renowned technologist, privacy and security guru, and the author of the new book, Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. Uh, we'll be talking to him shortly. Uh, for the news roundup, we have Jamil Jaffer, who's the founder of the estimable and ever-growing National Security Institute. He's also an adjunct professor at George Mason University. Uh, welcome, Jamil. Thanks, Stuart. Good to be here. And uh, uh, David Chris, formerly the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Justice Department's National Security Division. Uh, um, David, welcome. Thank you. Good to be here. And he is with his uh, uh, partner uh, in their latest venture, Nate Jones, veteran of the Justice Department, the National Security Council, and uh, uh, Microsoft, where he was an Assistant General Counsel. Nate, welcome. Thank you. I'm Stuart Baker, formerly with the NSA and DHS and the host of today's program. So um, because we've been on hiatus for a while and then talking about uh, blockchain and Bitcoin, uh, um, I thought I would start by asking a few of our folks what – if you were talking to other people who uh, were smart enough to spend uh, August out of Washington or out of uh, the office – what should they read that came out in the last several weeks? Um, uh, let me uh, let me just throw that open. Jamil, uh, you got a recommendation for something that uh, people might have missed because they weren't in town and that they really ought to read? Well, it's a layup, Stuart, because we're going to talk about it uh, just next. Uh, but it's the uh, Wired article on NotPetya and, uh, and sort of it gives you some great atmospherics around the events that took place, what actually happened with that uh, – with that malware um, and and how they identified what was going on and uh, you know a lot of ways um, it's a very small version of the amazing Kim Zetter book um, on on the uh, on the alleged uh, efforts against the, the Iranian um, nuclear. Yeah. So this is a kind of breakdown of what happened at Maersk, the yeah. uh, the big Danish shipping uh, giant, uh, uh, <clears throat> and basically not Petya took out all of their computers in about 45 seconds, if I remember right. And uh, and they were out for weeks. Uh, yeah. People couldn't unload uh, ships because they didn't know where the uh, cargo was or where it was going. Uh, it was a disaster. It really was. And, uh, you know, what's what's amazing about the uh, their recovery effort was that in part it depended on uh, one domain controller in Ghana uh, that had not gone down because a power surge had knocked it offline, and so it wasn't connected to the Maersk network. At Otherwise, the time, at the time when all all of the, uh, the 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 wildfire burned through the rest of the network, exactly. <laughs> and so they were able to reconstitute part of the network from that. Uh, there's there's a description in there of of, of their consultants from Deloitte going out uh, to every store in the neighborhood and buying. Um, new laptops and uh, Wi-Fi, uh, you know, uh, mobile Wi-Fi, prepaid Wi-Fi uh, pucks uh, in order to get them back up and running. Um, meanwhile, all around the world at the at the 72 ports that Maersk uh, has operations at, 800 shipping vessels all shut down, making up almost a fifth of the world's uh, bulk shipping capacity. Kind of an astounding yeah. thing. And by the way, not the intended targets of the uh, of the of the hack. In fact, the entire thing turned on one executive. In a port in the port city of Odessa, installing this Ukrainian tax software, which like he needed to pay of, their taxes, right? right? right uh, and he got permission, and, and that was it, just that one vulnerability, right. which the Russians had introduced, uh, uh, was enough to break Maersk's network. Right. It's astounding. It's astounding. It, it is. I, let me ask David. David, do you believe that this was unintended, or was this the Russians saying? hey, you do business with the Ukrainians at your own risk. Yeah, it's very difficult to know. I mean, one of the dangers in releasing, you know, computer viruses like regular viruses is they can mutate and they can get all over the place. So, you know, it's difficult to assess, but it, it sure is, a, I guess, a lucky piece of bad luck uh, if, if it wasn't intentional. You know what I mean? 
So uh, the other thing that, that I, I – two other things that I thought were interesting from that story, uh, one, $300 million it cost Maersk. And so the idea that this might have cost $10 billion globally is not out of line. There were several other companies that reported $300 million losses as a result of this. I mean, astounding amounts of money when you think about it um, through a through a you know an exploit that didn't probably didn't cost that much to develop. At the end of the day, they were using an, uh, an alleged NSA exploit called Eternal Blue, uh, an older uh, capability called Mimikatz, right? Co- in combination, yes, it takes some work to put those together and make them work effectively. To be sure, these are not capabilities that the average person has, but at net net cost. Not that high, particularly compared to the massive uh, price uh, it costs the, the world economy. And that would be another motivation for, for making this kind of sloppy and, and easy, easily spread. It, they thought it would hurt NSA's reputation globally because they were using a uh, uh, eternal blue yeah. uh, 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 vulnerability. Um, uh, so uh, the other – that's the other question. Uh, this is completely indiscriminate, completely uh, disproportionate to any legitimate or even illegitimate goal that the Russians might have had. Uh, I think you could you could line up 40 JAGs in the US DOD and say, this is what we want to do. And they'd all say, oh, that's a violation of the international law of war as it applies to uh, uh, cyber tactics. Uh, um, the Russians just did it. Are they paying a price? And I don't think that they're, uh, anybody has accused them of war crimes. Well, and, and that's exactly the problem here, Stuart, right? I mean, I think that you raised this point about, um, you know, Kirsten Nielsen has said, look, we need to be more aggressive. We need to lean forward. You've, you've been even more aggressive on that front saying we need, a, we need a whole realm of capabilities and maybe even to start really punching people back in the face, uh, you know, and maybe, maybe elsewhere. Um, and so I think that's a part of the conversation that has to be had because, you know, one of the things uh, Secretary Nielsen said that I think that was interesting was some of these things may be covert, right? They may be unseen, right? Part of the challenge with deterrence and part of the reason why deterrence doesn't work when you talk about cyber is because we too often use capabilities that we don't talk about or responses we don't talk about. We don't talk about what our red lines are. We don't say what's going to happen when you cross those red lines. And I realize red line is a dirty word now because we, right. we don't enforce them. But at the end of the day, if you're going to really – have deterrence work. It's not that deterrence doesn't work in cyberspace. It's that we just don't practice deterrence in cyberspace. And if we were to, I bet you it might work. But you've got to be willing to punch back. And that punch might come in cyberspace and I come somewhere else. We're just not ready to do that yet. So in in the world of, of um, punches in the dark, my favorite story is the uh, uh, the intrusion truth site, which is kind of DC leaks for good guys. It is basically a uh, a site devoted to outing the APTs, the uh, the government advanced persistent threats, uh, uh, and disclosing again sort of what we've started to, to get used to. Uh, and there are stories about intrusion truth uh, that are really kind of fun because they uh, they show uh, that the Ministry of State Security in China, which, um, you know, the, there are a lot of ways to read the, uh, the indictment uh, of uh, PLA members and the reaction to it. But one way to read it is that it spurred a turf fight in which the Ministry of State Security went to uh, uh, Chairman Xi and said, those bozos can't hack their way out of a paper bag without getting caught. Leave it to us. Kick them out. Uh, we won't get caught. You can promise not to do to steal commercial secrets because we ain't going to get caught. Uh, and uh, clearly, the PLA was shut down for a long time. Uh, now it turns out that the Ministry of State Security is getting caught as well, and it's an anonymous site that might or might not have some ties to official uh, uh, hackers that is disclosing some of this stuff. Yeah, I mean, look, uh, you know, it, it's funny. Uh, you might imagine that some of these discussions in China might mirror things happening in other parts of the world, um, you know, where there are capabilities in the intelligence community and capabilities in the military and a debate about who should be doing what and what axes are being breached, are being blown up when, you know, a, 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 an effort takes place. And so uh, it, it it would not surprise anybody to know that China's not the only place these conversations are happening um, and these back and forth internal dynamics take place. Um and, uh, you know, uh, as far as who's outing them, I mean, you know, it, uh, the Russians aren't the only people who play covert influence operations. Right. Okay. Um, Nate, David, uh, uh, your favorite story that uh, people should go back to be sure they read uh, now that they're back in town? Yeah, well, mine is um, 
the 170-plus page criminal complaint filed against a gentleman named Park Jin Hyuk. Um, it was filed in June, but released more recently. And he is the only defendant charged in that complaint with the Sony Pictures hack from 2014 with a theft of $81 million from the Bank of Bangladesh and for various misconduct involving the WannaCry malware, which uh, did some damage to the UK and particularly to its health system. Um, the, the complaint it's long and it's interesting reading if you have an appetite for that sort of thing in, I think, three ways. First, it tells you a bunch of things about cyber tradecraft and what uh, people do and, and certainly some tricks on what not to do since this guy got caught. Um, and then there are two aspects uh, of this that are interesting from the perspective of responses to these threats in the name and shame category. Um, so let me sort of step through some of it. Um, on the tradecraft side, you have a very detailed uh, explanation of the behavior here by the arm of the North Korean government, sometimes referred to as Lab Number 110, that Park was a part of. Uh, the, the reconnaissance that they engage in, the spear phishing that they engage in, and the way in which in the spear phishing, they actually have evolved from using made up emails that purport to come from Facebook or Google or whatever and usually have bad English and can be detected to just cutting and pasting actual emails that those providers send and then inserting different hyperlinks so that if you click, you're dead. It just shows how difficult it is for end users individually to resist these kinds of spear phishing attacks. Um, there's a nice analysis of the forensics of uh, malware and signature analysis there's a nice detail about how this uh, group of North Koreans was operating in China yep. uh, physically. Um, you know, North Korea <laughs> doesn't have that many IP addresses, so maybe they needed some better bandwidth. Um, anyway, um, and the, the big lesson, I think, for these cyber crooks out there um, is, you know, do not use the same email address or a variant of your email address or the same IP address for your open and public business consulting uh, that you use also for your illegal and improper malware-based uh, cyber malfeasance because, uh, believe it or not, eventually the federal BI can connect the dots there. So that's what happened to poor Mr. Park. Um, so that's sort of a, 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 sort of a summary of the tradecraft stuff that's in here. It's, it's really got a lot of detail and vocabulary and other interesting reading for those who care. Um, I think it's part of a trend towards, you know, the U.S. government naming and shaming. Jamil was talking about sort of the, the difficulty in developing red lines and, and a broader cyber strategy. I think that's particularly challenging these days as our adversaries are both using cyber techniques in a standalone and as part of a broader array of challenges mixed with propaganda and related efforts. And as we continue, I think, to look at things in a siloed fashion um, and what you've seen since the indictment of the Chinese army folks a while back is this move towards naming and shaming. Uh, we've indicted uniformed personnel. We've indicted what amount to cyber mercenaries and then outright cyber criminals. Um, and, you know, people can debate whether that's a good strategy, whether it's kind of a pathetic uh, flailing in the absence of any real uh, deterrence or strategy that we have. Does not you but think that, that, that the more that we do it, the, the, the more it feels like pathetic flailing? I, I was a big supporter of doing this, and I'm, I'm not saying it's a bad idea to have done what we've done, but it's very easy to jump the shark if you just keep doing this and nothing happens to the people that you've indicted. Yeah, well, it, you know, the, um, the one counterpoint to that is uh, the Southern District of New York was just able to extradite a Russian hacker who was uh, taking aim at U.S. financial institutions and news organizations. Now, he doesn't have any alleged direct connection to the Russian government, although who knows. Um, but it does point out the long arm and the long memory of the law here. So, 
Stuart, without really taking issue, you know, with your skepticism, um, I will say at least those GRU officers will not be coming to visit Disney World anytime soon, or if they do, you know, they'll get nabbed. Uh, so we have that satisfaction, I suppose. Well, this is why uh, this is why the Chinese wanted their own Disney World uh, right. inside China. <laughs> People are agitating in mainland China to be able to visit, and once they get indicted, you know, they can't travel. Uh, I also suspect Mr. Park isn't taking a lot of overseas vacations. Um, yeah. For fun. Well, it's, it, it, it's not like the, the North, North Korean tourism is is a big part of any country's uh, uh, plan. Well, isn't that the truth? <laughs> yes. Yet another reason you can't leave. Um, so, and then the 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 um, the second aspect of name and shame, which is um, you know Schadenfreude for some of us, is there's an article in BuzzFeed just reminding uh, the world of all the cyber experts who, at the time, in 2014, expressed deep skepticism at the FBI's then public assessment that it was indeed the North Koreans who were responsible for the uh, Sony Pictures hack. Um, this, this complaint, you know, is pretty detailed and represents the U.S. government saying that it's prepared, if necessary, to prove beyond a reasonable doubt that that's what happened here. Um, and so it, it sort of comes in even above a high confidence assessment from the intelligence community. And this BuzzFeed article uh, takes pains to point out all the people who said to the contrary and now are either out of business, frankly, in some cases, or are um, eating their hats. Um, you know, and that's that's fun for the anti-contrarian contrarians among us, uh, you know, who who see that um, indeed it seems like the FBI could put its money where its mouth was. Oh, yeah. Though, though, though this is kind of satisfying because it was a, a the, there was an element of seeking publicity by uh, picking on the FBI and uh, uh, trading on skepticism about uh, government. Uh, uh, and um, the accusations that the FBI got this wrong were loud and self-righteous. And uh, yeah. um, and then they sort of gradually kind of pulled back and uh, there was never a reckoning. But this is this BuzzFeed article really is the reckoning to say, you know, there are, there are consequences and there ought to be consequences for being so flamboyantly wrong uh, in trashing your own government. Right. Which is, you know, not to say that you shouldn't be skeptical, but but it is to say that I think, you know, those who said, oh, my God, you just fell for the old spoofed IP trick. And merely because this appeared to have a, an IP address associated with North Korea, you FBI knuckle draggers, you know, just sort of jumped to conclusions. Well, it turns out if you read the 172 page complaint, you know, there's considerably more detail uh, and an analysis behind it. So, you know, I guess that's a good thing. And it is only fair to have the skeptics now uh, called out as indeed they were in that BuzzFeed article. <laughs> OK, so let's 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 try to pick up a couple other things that actually did happen in the, in the last week. Uh, uh, also, in the last week, there was something called a five country ministerial that got lots of coverage uh, uh, on encryption. Um, uh, Nate, uh, is this new? Uh, and who the hell is the five country ministerial? <laughs> <laughs> I'm not sure I can answer the last question, um, but uh, no, I mean, it's been referred to in the press as the Five Eyes. I mean, it is the Five Eyes country, so to speak. It's, um, But it is it's generally a different part of the government. It's the homeland security and public safety uh, components of, of the Americans, the Canadians, Australians, um, Kiwis. And uh, I've forgotten one. Brits. Oh, the Brits. Yes, of course. <laughs> don't forget uh, the Brits. Don't forget the Brits. The um, the statement itself is is not anything particularly new. I don't think you know it. It sort of uh, recited their support for encryption, some of the challenges they're facing in criminal investigations, um, and you know I think they've continued to try to encourage technology companies to voluntarily do what they believe is the right thing and, and provide these governments with appropriate access even to encrypted data. Um, probably the newest thing was that it, it contained a, a written uh, threat, I guess, of sorts, where they said, you know, if technology companies don't do that, they'll pursue, quote, technological enforcement, legislative or other measures to achieve lawful access solutions. Um, you know, 
again, this doesn't necessarily represent a whole of government endorsement for any of these countries. It's just a particular component. Um, but I think you do have to read this in the context of other recent developments, including some that have appeared in the press lately. Um, in the U.S., for example, this would have at least been vetted by other departments and agencies who have a stake in this. So I think you can kind of assume that it represents the view of the Trump administration and the executive branch. Um, you know, further supporting that view, you have um, the ongoing litigation uh, reportedly about the wiretapping of messenger calls, uh, voice calls. And what I think you're seeing in the U.S., for example, is Congress remains reluctant to get involved. They're worried about the security implications. I'm not sure they really understand um, either side, but they're just reluctant to, to pick a side. Um, whereas the executive branch is, I think, getting more aggressive and they're turning to existing law and the so-called technical assistance authorities they have to seek to enforce those uh, companies and, and force them to decrypt data. Outside of the U.S., I think we're seeing that this is more likely to represent a whole of government view. Yep. Um, you know, the Brits were obviously the first to go with their legislation. Uh, the Aussies are, are not far behind. And even beyond the so-called Five Eyes countries, we're seeing other, other governments, including in Europe, um, pushing for some kind of action on encryption. So I think on the whole, what we're seeing is um, Five Eyes is certainly leading this effort to deal with the so-called encryption challenge that law enforcement's facing. The governments are taking a common approach on this by resorting to technical assistance authorities, either enforcement or legislation. Um, Non-U.S. countries, countries outside of the U.S., are moving more aggressively and actually legislating on this, um, imposing these technical assistance obligations, making them clearly applicable to U.S. tech companies. And, and finally, again, they're not alone. Um, there are other governments who are agitating on this. And so while nothing to me feels particularly imminent on this front, there, there seems to be a trend in this direction of, of um, having a, a reckoning on, on this issue. Yeah, I think if you're a company that has taken a strong stand on this, the, the, the image I have is of that Yukon uh, – a uh, prospector who's got a big fire, uh, uh, and uh, every time he looks up, the wolf's eyes look a little closer. Uh, uh, a lot of countries are creeping up on this issue, uh, and they are not retreating. They're they're keeping the ground that they've taken, and then the next one comes in for a nip or to to grab a piece of the pack, uh, uh, and. Uh, uh, you kind of know how this movie ends, uh, uh, but it may take another 10 years. You know, Stuart, what's interesting, just to sort of underline a couple of points that Nate made, is I, I do think this statement from the Five Eyes represents an expression of solidarity across the English-speaking intelligence community. Um, and it's an extension of the kind of going dark complaint that the FBI has been making for a long time. The ironic element of it is the different tactics that the circling wolves are using to bite the poor uh, prospector around the campfire. Because although this five-eye statement threatens legislation, and as Nate was saying, the Brits and the Aussies and others are enacting legislation at a pretty, pretty good clip, in the U.S. we're seeing a different approach, which I think is more to rely on litigation under existing authorities, the technical assistance provisions in particular, uh, and sort of either build a record for the need for legislation or get what they can get from the courts. So the, the different governments seem to be adopting different strategies. In Europe, they're enacting laws. In the U.S., they seem to have taken a break from those efforts and are instead going to the court. And so it's going to be interesting to see which set of tactics produces which results going forward. Yeah, I, I wrote my, my, uh, my meanest uh, op-ed ever about uh, uh, what discovery might be like if the uh, uh, government uh, um, uh, sued Apple uh, and was able to get discovery of the files. And I think uh, discovery of the correspondence among the engineers about why they're doing certain things is going to, it's, it's bound to be damaging 
to the companies because it's going to show a kind of contempt for law enforcement and the FBI and the government and even the victims of crime uh, that, you know, uh, it shouldn't surprise us. Uh, this is These are engineers, uh, often not noted for their social skills, uh, uh, but who have a strong ideological opposition uh, who are bound to say things that are that, that the companies will regret. And so I wouldn't be surprised if uh, uh, one of the strategies for litigating this is to, is to get access to those uh, engineering uh, emails. Yeah. Stuart, when you say it's your meanest op-ed ever, that really sets a pretty high bar. So, <laughs> yes, it does. Uh, <laughs> oh, I, 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 I go out and read it. <laughs> you should. It's called Deposing Tim Cook. And it is, uh, it, it, you know, I, I won't say I'm ashamed of it, but I, it is the snarkiest thing I've ever done. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, so I, I, I will never be allowed to buy a, 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 an iPhone. Uh, as soon as they find out that it's my credit card, they'll sell the sale. All right. I, uh, I think we ought to wrap it up there. Uh, thanks to uh, uh, David, uh, to Jamil, to Nate. Uh, and uh, let's go to our interview with Bruce Schneier. I'm really delighted to have Bruce here. The, those of you who uh, relentlessly listen to every one of these uh, podcasts got a, uh, a bonus episode while we were on hiatus of me and Bruce uh, um, dueling over his last book, uh, and uh, uh, he's already got a new one out. It's called Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. Uh, uh, Bruce is really internationally re renowned and has been first as a cryptographer and then as a policy analyst, uh, privacy and security guru. Uh, I, he's worked in industry. He's written book after book after book. It's remarkable. Uh, some of them very technical, some of them increasingly policy focused. This is policy focused. And I think what's interesting about it is the evolution in your views, Bruce. Uh, so why don't I just ask you to give us sort of the elevator speech of what this book says and maybe a little bit about what's new from your point of view. So what I try to explain in this book is how everything is becoming a computer. Our appliances, our cars, our power plants, our consumer goods, they are all now computers with things attached to them. Our refrigerators. Soon I, I expect all our bridges are going to be computer connected. Right? Our everything. And it's less computer connected is that they are computers. A car is a computer with four wheels and an engine. And what that means is that everything we know about computer security becomes true about everything. But the difference is, is that these computers can affect the world in a direct physical manner. And so a car can crash and an implantable medical device can kill somebody. So you and I are both old enough to remember those really funny jokes about how what if a car ran windows and uh, you, you had to be rebooted in the middle of the highway? It's happening. That's going to happen. So everything that we've done in our industry, in computer security, has assumed that the computers were effectively benign, that it was just data. And when it becomes physical action, computers now affect life and property, and that just changes everything. Right. It doesn't change the tech, but it changes how we interact with the tech. So, so it changes our policy. Bad security kills people. Right. As opposed to bad security just means your data is stolen, which could be loss of money, loss of privacy, lots of bad things, but nobody died. Right. And that's what's going to change. And that's really what the book's about. How do we get security in a world of physically capable computers? And you make the point that complexity, um, expanding the attack surface means that security – problems that we've had in the past are just the beginning. We will continue to have uh, more security problems. We're not likely to be able to fix them if we go down the road we're going down now. Well, certainly not with the, the current uh, business and political environment. You know, we have made all these compromises with innovation, with companies, because it, like it didn't matter. So we don't mind patching. We don't mind really kind of lousy products that we have to secure after the fact. Even something like extensibility, and this is a property of computers that they could be programmed to do anything. Right. Right. So your phone can do anything. Right. There's an app for that. I had a phone growing up. You remember it? It was big and black and attached to the wall. And no matter how hard you tried, it couldn't be anything other than a telephone. That's fundamentally different from your iPhone 
or any other computer. This is why we see malware on cars. Although I will say people um, have valued extensibility in computers, uh, but uh, the latest generation of computers, the the ones that uh, we call iPhones and Android phones, are a lot less extensible, uh, at least for the owners. And I wonder if we aren't seeing, as people struggle with security, a move toward locking these things down ever more tightly uh, and uh, the uh, OS provider taking responsibility for security in a way that reduces people's ability to tinker, uh, but also makes it a little less likely that we're going to have security holes. I think the key is a little less likely because, yes, your phone gets lots of apps, your refrigerator doesn't, a power plant doesn't, a car doesn't. Those are extensible because they're computers, and which just means you can have malware. You cannot have malware on an old school telephone, an old school refrigerator. There's no such thing. Well, there was that Captain Crunch whistle, right? <laughs> yeah, well, you know, that, but that, that's different. Yes. That's different than someone dropping unwanted functionality onto your device. Right. So as long as computers have CPUs, are general purpose, and we're so bad at securing them, we have to worry about something like the Dyn botnet, which attacked routers and webcams and digital video recorders, which shouldn't be extensible, shouldn't be able to get new software. But it turns out they can. Extensible was the default because that was the cheapest. It right. was al- It had already been developed for a much more sophisticated audience uh, who wanted to be able to tinker with their computers. And it was just easier to rip off that entire library than to come up with something that was limited to doing what uh, a router should do. So this is an important point. This is the economics of the Internet of Things. Because everyone always asks, why does your refrigerator have an internet connection? Isn't that stupid? And the reason is and will be that it will be cheaper than not doing it. So it used to be, 20 years ago, refrigerators had CPUs. They were specially designed embedded systems. Today, the cheapest thing to do is to pull a CPU off the rack and stick it in the device. Mm -hmm. And that CPU comes with an internet stack. It comes with video software. It comes with all this functionality that costs so little to make active. And that's why you're going to see toys and all these devices that you can't imagine being on the internet on the internet. Now, my guess is it'll be cool that there will be applications and uses that you and I can't think of that the younger generation will revel in Mm -hmm. and good for them. But that's also going to bring these vulnerabilities. And that's really what I want to talk about. What does that world look like? So some of the things you talk about uh, um, as incentives for lack of security I'm not sure I I quite buy into, but uh, let me talk about them. You basically talk about surveillance capitalism or surveillance as a business model. And it's pretty clear that uh, uh, companies that live by advertising uh, live by selling much more granular detail about the potential buyer that you're serving the ad to. Um, And I I guess I, I feel as though that ship has sailed. We could probably make it harder for third parties to, to do that. But the people who collect the information, the Facebooks and the Googles, uh, they're not ever going to go away. I, and uh, uh, the idea that they're going to collect more information is sort of built into the system. But they don't collect information through uh, bad security. In fact, they um, they try to give us better security than we would get on our own. Well. I mean, the way I think of it is everyone wants you to have security except from them. Yes. Right? So Google loves to give you great security as long as they can eavesdrop on everything. And to me, as long as these businesses need surveillance to operate, they will have holes in your security so they can spy on you. And those are holes that others can piggyback on. So, so even if they, they, they give you end-to-end encryption, they need to know your location. They want to know your location and they probably right. have come up with apps that make it cool uh, to know your location like uh, traffic apps. Right. And most of the time they don't want to give you end-to-end encryption because they want to mine that data and you want them to do useful things with the data on on their site. I mean Gmail is useful precisely because it doesn't have end-to-end encryption. And mm-hmm. they can sort mail and check for spam and do you know automatic responses and all the cool things that Gmail does that I don't know because I don't use Gmail. I think more importantly than surveillance is the architecture of control. 
So a lot of these companies want to very uh, minutely monitor and then sell what you can do with your device. Right? So Amazon doesn't just sell you books. They want to know how you're reading. What you're uh, underlining. What you're underlining. And they will decide, depending on how you purchase it, whether you can do text to audio, different things. Uh, I know a coffee maker that monitors usage so it can upsell you uh, supplies and <laughs> right. parts. Uh, Sony uh, wants to put uh, software onto their music to make sure you don't make illegal copies. All of those things are holes in your security as well. When we get to physically capable computers, when uh, the car dealer wants to be able to automatically turn off the car if you don't pay your loan. And that happens. And that happens. That opens the door for the bad guy to do the same thing. And I worry about that a lot more with physical computers than I do about surveillance, which you're right. The surveillance business model is here. I think forever is a long time. But in the near term, we're not getting rid of surveillance capitalism. I worry about control more in this world of physically capable computers. Okay, so I I, I see what you're saying is that uh, people uh, the people who sell us stuff want to be able to reach in later and tweak the experience uh, uh, or stop it uh, if we haven't continued the the stream of payments. Uh, I and. Any such capability is something that if they're fully hacked uh, means that uh, hackers can do it right. to us too. And it could be benign. I mean I have a programmable thermostat and you can easily imagine the power company saying, hey, you know, give us the ability to raise your thermostat a degree in the summer. When there's peak load, it'll – we'll do better. We'll give you a discount. That's a perfectly reasonable thing to do and you know, any environmentalist would say, yes, that is a great thing for the planet. Yet it's also a vulnerability. Yeah. If you're taking a shower and suddenly the state decides that you shouldn't, uh, it's it's sort of annoying to have the uh, the hot water cut off. I think the water wars are a few years off, but yes. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I. You also say that you think that governments have an interest in taking away security. Uh, and and you point to uh, some famous examples, the proposed clipper chip, which I, I, I was a proponent of uh, uh, when I was at NSA, um, and it controls on encryption, uh, export controls. But, you know, I, I do feel as though those stories are getting a little long in the tooth. Uh, and all the people who in the 90s said, if you would just let the get the state out of the way so that we could offer encryption and we'd have security, those people look a little dumb now, don't they? I mean, because we're so far from security nirvana that uh, we can't even see it from here. Well, this gets, gets back to everyone wants to have security except from them. So yes, I mean, uh, we are both veterans of the first crypto wars. It's kind of amazing. That was the mid-90s. I still have the t-shirts. Yes, I do. I, that's right. I, and, and the poster. And the poster. <laughs> I still have the poster. So yes, right. even now, uh, the governments are, are saying, you know, yes, you want to have security except from us. Right. And it, it was uh, fanciful to think that if we just let the government uh, go away, that companies would prize security because, in fact, corporations also want to spy on us. I, mean, I see it now as this kind of alliance fundamentally between the companies and the governments. And, and the bits of security we have, I think you're right, are few and far between. My worry, and again, this is, this is my point of the book, is as computers start killing people, that's going to look harder and harder to sustain to say, you know, we know it makes our power plants more vulnerable, but we really want to spy on people. That was a okay thing to say, and we could argue about it when computers were fundamentally benign. It becomes harder when they're actually dangerous. So I wonder about that. Uh, it, it strikes me that uh, if computers start killing people, it'll be people behind the computers who are killing people. And the response to that is going to be, you need to track them down. You need to stop them from killing people. Uh, and the governments are going to say, well, the only way we can do that is to uh, track them through cyberspace. I mean, if you look at what companies do for cybersecurity monitoring, uh, it's extraordinarily intrusive. It's 
it, 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 they have to do it, but they break encryption on people's uh, uh, HTML, uh, uh, sorry, uh, HTTPS connections because they have to because they have to see what's being exfiltrated. They have to see what's coming in. Uh, but that means that they if you use a corporate computer to log on to Gmail, somebody down in IT has your uh, credentials. Uh, and and so don't you think that that's what the government is going to say? We need to do for the internet what people have been doing for their intranets for 15 years? My guess is you're right. They're going to say that and, and we'll see how long that's tenable. I mean, and this is how we're going to have to watch the future. As computers get more dangerous, I'd love to talk about uh, attribution and tracking down sure. bad guys later on. I think okay. it's a really good conversation to have there. We're going to have to figure out whether we are more secure by locking down our stuff or more secure by keeping our stuff open so we can track down the bad guys. Now, again, as the cost of getting it wrong increases, the value of locking it down beforehand increases. So it's going to be an arms race we're going to watch. My guess is that defense dominant wins, that that that. You know, that is the phrase I can't even figure out who to attribute it to anymore. We might have the biggest stones. We also have the glassiest houses. Right. right? As our house gets glassier, that we're going to need prevention, that detection and response works better against state actors, works terrible against non-state actors. Mm-hmm. You know, it's really hard to tell in cyberspace who's attacking you. Uh, we can attribute some things, not others. But this will be the fundamental tension. And I think that's where – policy gets interesting. So let's I, – I, I want to move to some of the things you think we should be doing, uh, can be doing because uh, uh, that's really in many ways what's new here because uh, these other critiques have been common and they were part of your other uh, uh, books to some degree. Uh, what is it that, that you think the United States, the West, the world can do to avoid – uh, catastrophes in this new, uh, uh, totally connected world. I think what's missing is government involvement in cyberspace. That traditionally this has been a government-free, libertarian, let the companies do what they want zone, which was okay when it didn't matter. Yeah. Now that it matters, that's no longer tenable. And so in my book, I, I try to tease out what government intervention would look like. And I have a lot of – I talk about a lot of things. So we can look at a lot of other industries where government said, OK, industry, stop killing people. Right. right? You, you, you need to do these things right. And, and they can range from very heavy-handed, which is like avionics or pharmaceuticals, to much more light touch would be consumer goods and toys, uh, to, to things in the middle. And uh, I look at uh, rigid rules and standards and flexible liability regimes and, and notions of due care. I mean, I'm not an attorney, but I talk to many of them, uh, looking at how we can use international agreements because this is an international problem. How do we build systems that assume there are insecurities but regain security? And my guess is going to be a combination of all of these things. So I, I – I- this is one point where we agree and Silicon Valley doesn't. Uh, That's right. Uh, but I, you know, I look at the past century and I can't find one industry that improves security and safety without being forced. Right. Cars, planes, pharmaceuticals, medical devices, food, restaurants, workplace, consumer goods, most recently financial products. Yep. In every case, the economics – rewards skimping on security and safety, taking the chance, hoping you do okay, rolling the dice in the courts if you don't, and stalling regulation as long as possible. That's what happens. And then people – something bad happens and people say, okay, that's enough. We've had it, right? And my worry is that computers fail differently. You know, there's, you know, tainted lettuce and some people die. That's terrible and we want to fix that. But computers – work perfectly until one day when none of them do. That's the way they fail. So we could easily wake up one morning and all the cars don't work, or more likely all the cars of one particular make and model year. And, you know, my title of, you know, click here to kill everybody is still science fiction, but we now could you, easily you have... See that right, you can see it, and you can certainly see catastrophic failure, where all the cars of a certain make and model year, suddenly the brakes don't work. 
Right. And that's not science fiction. We've had uh, researchers demonstrate brake failing remotely. Uh, there's a great YouTube video of a reporter. And his, the expression of his face when the hackers actually do it is – I don't want to use the word priceless, but it's worth watching. Uh, yeah. Yeah, because it's one thing to know it's possible. It's another thing to put your foot on the brakes and nothing happens. Right. And now computers can do that. And, and you know, the uh, – Because it's all fly-by-wire. Right. And, and the, they're all interconnected. And the, the disaster we talk about now, the easy ones to talk about are cars and medical devices. Also airplanes, right? right. We know DHS demonstrated. Uh, we don't know the details, but remotely hacking an airplane in the air by someone on the ground. We know in some ways that's been demonstrated. So medical devices is interesting and we're going to have uh, uh, the woman from the FDA who regulates uh, uh, the cybersecurity of medical devices on in a couple of uh, months. But the FDA is a aggressive regulator. They, they have a really strong regulatory co uh, um, culture and yet their handling of cybersecurity um, really it doesn't fit the way most of us think cybersecurity should be handled. Uh, they've they've stayed away from it. Uh, they have not really encouraged uh, um, responsible disclosure and uh, response. And you know, part of it is it's a different culture. But you know, going into going into repair your phone means just taking the back off and voiding the warranty. It's a different thing when you have to actually open somebody's chest. Right. And there was a, uh, a software update to, I think, a St. Jude medical device that didn't require opening up your chest, which is a good thing. But then we have to worry about, can someone drop malware on it? Now, it'd be interesting to watch the FDA. I think they are being affected by this, you know, libertarian, don't slow innovation mm -hmm. culture of Silicon Valley. And when I talk, I'm asked a lot, won't this uh, slow innovation? And I have sort of two answers. The one is yes, and maybe that's a good thing because when innovation can kill you, you do want to slow it down. Right. And the other is that if you set the incentives right, you actually get innovation working on your side. We've seen this in cybersecurity in so many areas. The example I always like to use are credit cards. Yep. There's been so many advances in credit card security because government went to the credit companies in 1978 and said, you are liable for fraud. Right. And, and so not the, the customer. Having internalized it, they, they had to, to fix it. I, 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 I think you're right. And um, 10 years ago, you would have said, well, that's just not going to happen. Everybody loves the, the, the coolness of the new technology. But I, I think that climate is completely different in the last two years. So. I, I think it is. And I think physically capable computers makes it even more different. But yeah, yeah we, we're, we're, we are seeing a sea change in how we treat personal tech, which I think surprised a lot of us. So even so, regulation, a slow, the only thing slower than regulation, the only two things I can think of slower than regulation are one, using the courts and expecting them to enforce standards long after the fact. Uh, some judge says, oh, that sounds insecure to me. I, what do they know? Uh, and, and even worse, even slower is trying to do this internationally, as, as you had suggested. I just, you know, we are still waiting for the world to adopt the uh, uh, 1985, I think, uh, Budapest Convention, which just takes the CFAA and writes it into a treaty saying, yes, people who attack, uh, who engage it with computers in an unauthorized fashion uh, without right should be uh, uh, punished. And you need to have a 24-hour hotline so we can call you to help uh, track people. Uh, the Indians, the Chinese, the Russians have said, oh, that sounds like Western imperialism to us. Um, if we can't even get agreement on that, how are we going to get agreements on, on, on the NIST cybersecurity framework? So I don't know. And, and here's our problem. I think it's bigger than cybersecurity. I mean, are we moving into a world where tech moves faster than policy? Hey, you're sure. right. right that, that any kind of regulation is going to be slower than we want. I don't have an alternative, though. So you know, who's most agile? Uh, the courts can be agile. They're slow, but they're better than the legislators. The regulatory agencies, you know, if they have flexible standards, right. you can see them ratcheted up. Uh, that's the best I got. And you might be right that they're going to be too slow. If they are, we're screwed. You know, we are moving to a world where tech is moving fast. 
where catastrophic risk is moving fast. And we're going to need to figure out what agile government looks like. And this is a good a place to start as any. Uh, I agree with you that uh, international treaties are going to be slow. We need them. Uh, I, I agree with you that norms are even slower. We need them. We need to figure out how to make this work. I mean, right now, I don't see the U.S. government doing anything anytime soon. I'm looking uh, to Europe, who really is the regulatory superpower on the planet right now, and they are flexing their muscle, and to but some of the U.S. states. Yeah. So, California, New York, Massachusetts are aggressive states in this kind of area, in this area. In privacy, not in security. They're going to move there. I They're going to have to go to security. They have to. I, I think I mean, GDPR was just step one. I think security is next. Because right. security is actually more important, more dangerous than privacy. Yeah, but the problem in Europe is, of course, the privacy ideologues don't care about security, or at least they 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 think that that's a subordinate concern to privacy. So I'll I'll argue that in this area we've gone past the debate of regulation, no regulation. That the debate is now smart regulation versus stupid regulation. When something happens, right. okay. when there's a catastrophe. People will demand the government must do something. And you know the government can move fast. The Patriot Act was passed really fast right. because something must be done. Mm -hmm. Here was something. Therefore, we did it. Yep. With no thought. Nobody read it. It just was passed. And that same thing will happen when cars kill 500. And that worries me because we're going to get really lousy regulation that way. So we are almost certainly going to the United States is almost certainly going to borrow the techniques of Europe, even if we don't borrow the the, uh, the GDPR, and just say, if you do business with the United States, if you send your stuff here, uh, you're subject to our security regulation. Right. And that's that, that's kind of standard uh, uh, tort law anyway. Um, but isn't that a, a, a way of regulating that doesn't require a lot of uh, international negotiation? Uh, it might be. I mean, I worry a lot about some of the third world countries because, yep. you know, the, these toys are going to be made in some random country. But it'd be interesting to watch how this works. So the car I buy in the United States is not the same car I buy in Mexico. Right. right? Environmental laws are different and Ford sells different cars. But the Facebook I get in the United States is the same Facebook I get in Europe. We saw GDPR and we in the U.S. have to deal with all of these annoying warnings that are showing up on our websites. <laughs> yes, exactly. Right? Because – it's easier for these companies to have one product or service and sell it around the world. Right. So, so here's the question. Europe passes a law, cybersecurity law, and an uh, interconnected toy is illegal in Europe. The manufacturer is probably going to change how it's made and sell that better toy everywhere. So we yes. win. Ah, right. right. I would like to see some of these international laws have positive spillover effects. And I think they're more likely in security and safety than in privacy. Because right? if company X – Refrigerator manufacturers are going to spend the money to design a more secure refrigerator for European markets. I think they're more likely to sell it in the U.S. and tout it as an, a feature because mm -hmm. it's free. They did it already. It's easier to make a bunch more than to make a separate design. So there's a lot. This is it's a, it's a great book. It's a, it, it it is thoughtful about all of these issues, uh, uh, and uh, that's not always the case in this in this area. Let me ask about one thing that you don't embrace the way I do, which is, um, uh, you know, when you talk about uh, terrorism, as you have, you kind of mock the U.S. government for spending uh, – trying to get to uh, zero uh, acts of terrorism, risk of terrorism, uh, uh, and uh, have encouraged a much more risk management uh, criminal law approach. Um, why isn't that the case here too? Why why aren't we bringing to bear the tools of criminal law and and design the technology so we can find the people who are uh, carrying out these attacks and punish them, uh, whether they're nation states or um, individuals? Uh, it, it just seems to me um, there we are moving in the direction the technology wants to go anywhere that anyway they, that is to say you know yes our te our, our security sucks but so does it, the people who are attacking uh, us uh, and we can identify them as as the last 10 years have shown we've gotten really good at finding the facebook pages of the people who are launching attacks on us 
So there's, there's a bunch there. I think law enforcement is part of, of both solutions. I spent a bunch of time on how to make the FBI smarter in this world. And I, I think that we have to invest a lot of money in making the FBI able to solve crimes in this age. And I think we're, we're, we're skimping on that. How about cutting down on uh, anonymity and enabling attribution, making that part of the design? I think that's dangerous. I think there is a lot of value to anonymity. And that really was – I wrote that in my previous book, mm-hmm. I mean, the social value of anonymity and privacy. And I think we'd be giving up a lot as society to do that. So I want to solve these problems without that. I think we'll have a more robust, do better you think, you society. you think we can? Don't know. Right? The jury's out. You know, and, and you know, in in my darker days, I, I I wonder if the whole freedom bit was kind of a neat blip in history, when a, a lone individual couldn't do a catastrophic amount of damage. And I I hope we can get get beyond this. A wild card here is AI, mm-hmm. which I think will benefit offense defense more than offense by a lot. Really, I actually do. But let, let me let's talk a bit about attribution. I think we are. There's a split in attribution that we as the United States are good at it at the intelligence level. Mm-hmm. You know, when North Korea attacks us, we can figure out who it is. When right. Russia does, we can figure out who it is. When the FBI has to do attribution for crime, it's a lot harder. It's harder because they have to use tools that they have to blow in order to it's make It's not the just case. that, that they don't have that broad level of we're watching everything right. that, that the NSA can do and the FBI can't. Right. We're, no, no, no one is uh, – the ACLU is now bringing lawsuits on behalf of Vladimir Putin to say his that, rights have been violated. That's right. So it, we, attribution I think is going to be part of it, but I don't think we can rely on it. There's a democratization of attack, which I think is, is important here. Terrorism almost never happens. Mm-hmm. It is incredibly rare. Right. But conventional crime happens all the time. And as conventional crime moves into cyberspace and you get ransomware against cars at speed because it's profitable or against medical devices that are implanted in your body, that is a different level of crime. And – Behind these physically capable computers are, you're right, physically capable attackers at distance. And the scale changes. And that's where I think we have to start rethinking things. So I, I, my guess is we aren't going to get a choice about this because China is going to create a market for fully att- attributed IT because uh, um, that's what the government wants and the companies there are happy to provide it. To, and it's actually in some cases – easier to do it that way than to build in anonymity. Uh, and uh, uh, just like Linux today, it's going to be available for everybody so cheaply uh, that the argument, well, we shouldn't do that, is just going to fall on death. No, the ears. argument will be it's full of Chinese back doors and you yes. shouldn't do it. That's, that's, that, that is true. And, and, and so that leads to a, uh, a truly splintered internet. And, and that I think would be it would a shame too. But it's often hard to see another option as countries are moving in such different directions. So, Bruce, we, we're, uh, we're out of time. Um, but uh, um, is there something that we didn't cover that we ought to cover? And then I'm going to ask you for any events that you've got coming up that people who want to see and hear more from you can uh, uh, attend. Uh, we co- didn't cover so many things yes, that are in the book that everyone must immediately it's, buy it and is, read. It's great. No, there's something new on everything. Third page, maybe every second page. I'm, I'm really. I, I, it was. It was a lot of fun to walk through this because at every point you stop and say, actually, there's three issues here. One, two, three. That's two pages, and you're on to the next topic and three more issues that people have to struggle with. So it's a. It, it, it does reward slow reading. And I'm doing events uh, this week and next week in New York, Boston, and uh, Washington D.C. Uh, I'd, I'd list them all, but easier is to go to schneier.com and look at events, and they're all listed there. So so people can come see me there. Uh, this has been probably the most agreeable interview I've ever had in my life with Stuart Baker, which is phenomenal. <laughs> it's true. It's true. <laughs> uh, so as the world gets scarier, he and I agree more. That, I don't know if that's a good thing or not, but it seems to be true. Well, it, 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 may, it may just reflect that I uh, – uh, I have an eye for scary things, uh, and I've been seeing them for a while. Uh, uh, but 
Uh, that's Bruce Schneier, uh, author of Click Here to Kill Everybody, Security and Survival in a Hyperconnected World. It's now available on Amazon. I got it down on uh, Kindle. Uh, I've got a paperback here, uh, uh, great book uh, uh, worth uh, reading. Uh, and I wanted to say uh, we've got some great people coming in for interviews. Michael Chertoff, also an author now, uh, is going to be talking about his book. Uh, Peter Singer uh, uh, has a new book. He's the guy who uh, famously uh, uh, had the Chinese uh, uh, use conventional arms to take over Hawaii at one point. Uh, Suzanne Schwartz is the Associate Director for Science and Strategic Partners at the FDA, and we'll be asking her how the FDA's uh, security culture matches with uh, the Internet of Things. And um, the General Counsel of GCHQ will also be uh, uh, joining us. Uh, I, I'm not uh, allowed to use his name. Uh, uh, but uh, That just uh, sounds <laughs> totally spooky. It does, doesn't it? It's very cool. Uh, okay. And uh, for those of you who are uh, um, uh, looking for more Stuart Baker, I'm going to be uh, appearing on This Week in Law, uh, which is part of the Twit Network. Uh, I think in next one, the next version uh, of that uh, um, with Denise Howell. Uh, I, if you've got other guest interviews to suggest, uh, send them in, and we will award you one of our highly coveted CyberLaw podcast mugs, which we'll be giving to Bruce in a minute. Uh, uh, send comments and suggestions to cyberlawpodcast at steptoe.com. Send me notes uh, and comments at uh, on Twitter and LinkedIn. Uh, Facebook, I am... Uh, not because I'm mad at Facebook, but just because they have made it harder to post there. I'm, I'm posting less on uh, Facebook. Uh, uh, and wherever you uh, see us, rate us and leave a review. iTunes, Google Play, uh, uh, Stitcher, uh, Pocket Cast. Uh, that's how people find us. Uh, so this has been the CyberLaw Podcast. Please join us next week as we once again provide insights into the latest events in technology, security, privacy, and government.